0: up on this week's episode of the doctor's pharmacy this is the cool thing about lucid dreaming it maximizes the third of our life that we spend asleep by doing that we optimize the two-thirds that we spend awake
1: welcome to the doctor's pharmacy i'm dr mark hyman and that's pharmacy with an f f-a-r-m-a-c-y a a place for conversations that matter and today's conversation is something that's a little unusual, but I think will matter to many of you because it's about becoming healthier in a realm that we often don't talk about, which is our spiritual life. And the guest today we have is an extraordinary young man who is one of the leading teachers of something called lucid dreaming, which we'll get into in depth, but essentially it's being awake while you're dreaming as a way to explore your consciousness and heal and resolve issues in your life, and be more awake and have a bigger brain and all kinds of cool stuff that happens as a result of this amazing technique or method that isn't really new and we'll talk about that. He actually derived a lot of this through his own experience, not knowing actually what he was doing and just kind of figured it out as a little kid, 12 years old, but he then realize that this was an ancient practice of what's called dream yoga in Tibetan Buddhism that's been a very secret practice for thousands of years that now is being taught to Westerners. Uh, and he actually was authorized to teach dream yoga within the Kagyu School of Tibetan Buddhism by Lama Yeshe Rinpoche in 2008. And he's developed this holistic approach to dream work called Mindfulness of Dream and Sleep. He's written three books about it. Which have been translated into 13 languages. He's spoken at major universities like Cambridge University. He's spoken at uh, Buddhism and youth culture at the, about Buddhism and youth culture at the House of Parliament. He's a regular expert panelist for the Guardian. He's been named the next generation of meditation teachers. Not likely the kind of guy you think when you meet him, but he actually is pretty cool. And uh, as <laughs> uh, I get why he was awarded in 2018, the Churchill Fellowship grant to research mindfulness based ptsd treatment a lot of veterans have trauma and uh, they suffer desperately from nightmares and from ptsd and this method is a way of helping them heal from the trauma he's run retreats all over the world for the last 10 years workshops in 20 countries and teaches internationally he's lived for seven years in london at the kagyu samedzong buddhist center and now lives down the road with his wife uh Jade Shaw. And when he's not teaching, he enjoys practicing martial arts. He's a black belt in kickboxing. So I'm going to be very nice to him doing this podcast. <laughs> he likes going to the movies and dancing. That sounds good. Kickboxing, movies, and dancing. All right. Welcome, Charlie. Cool, man. Thank you. It's a
0: pleasure to be here.
1: Okay. So, you know, this is an interesting moment in history. Um, on this podcast, we've had Michael Pollan talking mm. about psychedelic experience and other researchers in the space talking about the way in which we can become more awake, have a more connected experience to our daily life, deal with anxiety, fear, the fear of death, using drugs. Mm -hmm. Uh, People are exploring ayahuasca Mm -hmm. and iboga and Mm -hmm. MDMA as various kinds of access points into consciousness that are healing and not just for party drugs. And yet there's been this method that's been around for a heck of a long time. Mm That allows us to do a lot of the same things without the drugs, without the vomiting, (laughs) without with without having to sit in meditation for ten thousand hours. (laughs) Um, And it's it's sort of like a shortcut. But we have all the technology hardwired in us. We just didn't know how to use it. It's like you know Dorothy in the ruby red slippers. You know she knew how to get home. All she had to do was click her heels three times, and Mm -hmm. she could get home. We have all of it hardwired into us, and yet we sort of lost it from our culture. And sort of this lucid dreaming or conscious dreaming, whatever people want to call it, dream yoga, is this methodology that has allowed people to go into explorations of themselves, of consciousness, uh, that is not just about having a party in your dreams, like flying, which is fun, but about actually living a life that's more connected, that's Mm -hmm, more mm -hmm. awake, that's Mm -hmm. more conscious, that allows you to fulfill the purpose you have here on earth and it's a really interesting thing and my wife mia she got into this stuff um because she was scared of death because i almost died and uh she she <laughs> was freaking out about it and she started to explore this whole world and it's really really helped her to sort of sort through that and i've been kind of been in the passenger seat as she's gone through all this and Listen to all of her dreams and all of her stories. And it's just fascinating. And I really want to get into it, but um, I've been writing a book. So as soon as I'm done, I promise I'm going to get into it. <laughs> so welcome, Charlie.
0: Thanks, man. It's great to be here.
1: Okay. So um, you basically shared a story that uh, was fascinating to me, which was in your were 12. Mm-hmm. You uh, were reading some magazine and you mm-hmm. saw this ad for this Gizmo yeah. That was way too expensive that your dad didn't want to buy you to help induce lucid dreaming. Yeah. And, uh, but then you sort of happened upon it yourself.
0: So how did that spontaneous experience happen? Okay. So yeah, the bit I share in the book, I think is that it started at 12. What I don't share is actually, it was a little bit more scatological. It was when I was like six or seven, I used to still wet the bed. And um, like, not not in the daytime, but at nighttime, I was like wearing nappies. That's
1: urological.
0: (laughs) Oh, urological, okay, not scatological. Scatological is the other part. Oh yeah, it wasn't quite that, it was was, was, was urological then. And I was like wearing, you know, still nappies, diapers in bed, till I was like five, six years old. Uh And um, I remember I would have these dreams, I would really need to pee. And needing to pee would kind of wake me up in the dream and I'd go, oh, I'm in a dream. I should wake up and go to the toilet. And then I'd be like, oh, no, but if I wake up, the sharks under the bed, that was my kind of fear, will bite my heels. So no, I'll just pee in the dream. And of course, as anyone knows, peeing in the dream is a trap. Don't do it. So I'd wet the bed (laughs) and wake up. But so I remember there having these short periods of lucidity. Like real young. So then when I was 12 and I was reading that, it was like a little- I've thing. had those dreams, by the way. I remember I
1: remember like being having to really go pee bad in a dream. And in the dream, you think, I got to go pee. I got to yeah. go pee. And then you wake up. Exactly. Yeah. So there's that yeah. bit of
0: lucidity. Um, and that gadget magazine was claiming that if you wore this sleep mask, it would give you more of those dreams. And that's how I referenced. Like, dad, dad, those dreams I used to have uh, where you know that you're dreaming, this uh, can give you more. So you so, had a reference point. Yeah, I had a reference point. But then, I don't know, then it goes blurry. I just go back being a kid. And then, yeah, like 15, 16, I get interested in consciousness and and psychedelics and um, kind of Buddhism sounded cool because of the Shaolin monks and stuff but it seemed like too much hard work. You think all the Buddhists were Kung Fu masters? Yeah, I basically thought all Buddhists were Kung Fu masters. That was super cool. It turns (laughs) out like, you know, it's a very small sect of Buddhism that do that. Um, And then, yeah, I bought some books and because I'd been really into dreaming from young and I'd had these lucid dreams at like, you know, when I was wetting the bed and stuff, um, when I started to practice the things in the lucid dreaming books, I picked it up quite quickly and then, started having these, these lucid dreams, which we should look at the definition. It's a dream where you know that you're dreaming as the dream is happening. So it's a phenomenon of REM dreaming sleep. We know this is real. We've got all the science on it. Uh, you're not half awake, half asleep. It's not just having a really vivid dream. It's specifically where you're in the dream, sound asleep and you go, whoa, this is all a dream.
1: Yeah. Cause it, it kind of sounds like woo woo, you know, yeah. like, and, and, oh, this is just this weird thing that a yeah. bunch of Tibetan monks figured out, but it's Maybe it's not, but there's actually a tremendous amount of science behind
0: it. Yeah. So, I mean, it was a proven phenomenon of REM dreaming sleep back in uh, 1975 at Hull University in the UK. Then a few years later, the famous Stephen LaBerge did similar um, uh, tests and he got all his, his stuff was all peer reviewed and stuff. Um, so really back in the 80s, we, we knew it was for real, but then you had this resurgence around like 2010, 2011, they did the first fMRI scans on lucid dreamers. So they could see like... Actually, what was the brain doing when you became lucid? And once they saw that and they saw specifically that there was activity in the right dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, and you could see, oh, wow, they're, they're literally conscious while they're dreaming. Like so the, so the back up opened. a little bit.
1: So normally when you're dreaming, the front of your brain, which is your executive function, your ego yeah. and all that, is kind of shut off.
0: Yeah, very little activity. Right?
1: But this is a different kind of dreaming where that part lights up and you're conscious while you're dreaming. Yeah. So usually, when and it's we, a different physiologic state.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's a hy- they call it hybrid state of consciousness in which the prefrontal cortex is activated at the same time as the dreaming parts of the brain, and it's and, like
1: and people were actually in the machines or hooked up to EEGs and they were able to communicate
0: when they were dreaming. Because of their eye movements. Oh, that was the first study back in the seventies. Right. Yeah. Now I interviewed the dude for my second book, his name Keith Hearn. Um, he's still working as a, a hypnotherapist and lucid dreaming teacher and stuff. And he knew that the only way to prove to the skeptical scientific community that lucid dreaming was for real and not what they thought it was, which is either people were lying, or the only other option was <laughs> faking. Yeah, straight they were up they're faking, they were faking it. it. Or they were having what's called micro awakenings, which is where you have a very brief awakening from a really vivid dream. And then you drop back into it, leading to the illusion that you were awake in the dream. Yeah. Um, so he knew he needed to disprove that. And this the only- is
1: a whole different level of consciousness. That's yeah. in, like a doorway
0: that we never go through. Totally. We, they, they just thought it's impossible. They said it was a um, paradoxical impossibility to be both conscious and dreaming at the same time. That was like mainstream science's view up till 1975. And actually for years afterwards, because even though he got the studies and they were like, oh, you know, we, it took a while for the scientific establishment to admit it. Anyway, he needed to somehow show that the person was asleep, but were conscious while they were asleep and were acknowledging the outside world. So he thought, well, how the hell do you send a signal from the dream? You're in muscular paralysis and REM dreaming sleep. Uh, the only things that aren't paralyzed, are the respiratory system and the eyes, right? right? So first of all, he tried to with breath- so I, That's
1: what REM is, is rapid eye movement. Oh yeah, movement. rapid eye movement. Yeah, exactly. And that's what it so, stands for. So
0: he tried to do it with a breath. He was like, look, We'll hook you up to EGs, eye scanners, all this kind of stuff. When you are lucid, do a certain, uh, uh, like, breathing uh, rhythm. Catter. And we'll see if we can pick that up in the lab. And it kind of worked, but not very well. Then he tried, um, he made these little sensors to go on your pinky, that when you're lucid, like, move your pinky, because maybe that wouldn't be so paralyzed. That didn't work. And then he was thinking, okay, well, look, we've seen how when people are in the lucid dream state, if they're, like, watching a tennis match, you see their eyes go left, right, left, right, as they watch the ball go over the net because... In a lucid dream, the eyes will physically correspond to what you're seeing in the lucid dream. So I thought, okay, cool. Well, rapid eye movement. What I want you to do is we'll hook you up to the EG. um, uh, We'll hook you up to, um, you know, eye monitors and all this kind of stuff. And when you're lucid, engage a kind of a Morse code of eye movements, like two to the left, two to the right, one up, one down, something like that, which will then pick up on the eye movement records. We've got the EG to prove you're still asleep. And there we'll have the communication that you you were fully lucid in the dream. And uh, the first time they did it, he missed it. They had been recording like the whole night, this old school EEG where it comes like ink on paper. And I think it's something like he'd stopped recording at eight o'clock in the morning. He's packing up the stuff. And then downstairs where uh, Alan Walsley was the name of the dreamer, Keith Hume was the scientist. And Alan like yells up at like 20 past eight, did you get it? Did you get it? I was lucid. And he stopped the recording. So first one, they missed it. A couple of weeks later, they did the same thing and they got it. And I said to him, Uh, And that the recording machine that they use is in the Science Museum in London. So I met him at the Science Museum. I thought, what a cool place to interview him for the book, right? And he's telling me this whole story. And I said, well, dude, like, so you're sitting there watching these eye movements coming through and they're super scattered. And then suddenly you see it go, chuk, 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 pause, chuk, 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 chuk. And it's like, that's the dude doing the eye movement pattern. I said, how did it feel? And he said, you know, in those sci-fi movies where everyone at the NASA headquarters uh, are there and they receive, you know, a communication from the other world. And yeah, yeah. And I was, he's like, it was like that, but it was from yeah. the inner world. And yeah. then he said something quite sweet. He That's said, pretty amazing. He said, but you know, in those movies, everyone give each other high fives. Yeah. yeah. And he went, there was no one to high five. And I was quite <laughs> moved by this, right? And I lean over to him and I give him this like, awkward high five. And he goes, oh, 40 years too late, but thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> so, So then the fMRI actually shows. TV. Yeah. So. But I mean, there's a big stuff in between that. there are been lo- lots of studies on lucid dreaming and athletics and stuff like that. But then the big breakthrough came with those studies at Heidelberg and the, the Max Planck Institute where they were doing fMRI. Because yeah. then it was like, you can so, see it. So it's functional real.
1: MRI, you can see the dynamic action of yeah. the brain, what it's doing, which parts are lighting up, which yeah. parts aren't lighting up. And you can see that it's different than a normal sleep or dream yeah. pattern. Yeah.
0: And the EEG could do that too. But the cool thing about the fMRI was that you saw it live. And you can see the kind of video of it, and you got the front part of the brain, hardly any activity, and suddenly it blows up red. And it's like the dude just became lucid. And the guy is sound asleep. asleep. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. Isn't that cool? It's amazing. So it, in, in studies, it also seems to mirror the kinds of brain changes that happen with meditation, right? Mm-hmm. So can you speak to that? And what, what happens that's similar? in meditation?
0: Okay, well, well first of all, the, the brain mirrors what happens in the waking state once you're lucid. Once you're lucid, the brain doesn't think you're having a lucid dream, it thinks you're awake, which is how the whole neuroplasticity through lucid dreaming things works. It's not that- We'll luc- come back to that. Yeah, uh, okay, so, so back to the meditation thing. Um. They've found that some people, when they become lucid, the brain seems to go into gamma, which is a brainwave that they once associated with kind of high level meditators, more than like 10,000 hours meditation stuff.
1: The Olympic level meditators. Yeah,
0: isn't it interesting that when these people get lucid, they go into gamma, and the Buddhists are going, yeah, of course they go into gamma. It's a state of meditation. If we define one aspect of mindfulness meditation as knowing what's happening as it's happening, present state awareness, lucid dreaming is knowing that you're dreaming as you're dreaming, aware of the present state moment of being dreaming. So no wonder it shows up as a meditation mind state. And no wonder this is why most people's first few lucid dreams last about five seconds. Because we go, I'm dreaming, I'm dreaming, this is so cool. Then you wake up, just like our first meditation session might be, okay, and breathe. What am I having for lunch? You know, we, we go on the tightrope, we step on. <laughs> right. But with practice, just like meditation, we can yeah. stay in that state of mindful awareness for longer and longer. And with practice, you can have a lucid dream as long as a REM period, which is an hour. Imagine That's spending an mean, hour inside yeah. a huge three dimensional virtual reality simulation of your own psychology. Like Inception. It's like Inception, and it's super psychedelic. You know, in the intro, when you talked about psychedelics, like, I mean, I did a lot of psychedelics when I was younger. Then I took too much and that led me to Buddhism because like, how do I fix my mind? So I know the psychedelic experience reasonably well. Um, and all I can say is the, the experiences that I've had through lucid dreaming make a lot of the psychedelic experiences seem like kindergarten. Yeah. It's like in the lucid dream, you know you're asleep in bed. So there's you can no be in There's no hangover. Yeah, there's no hangover. There's no dodgy <laughs> people to meet on the street. You don't have to go to Peru to do it. You're in the dream and you're like, okay, hey, I know my body's asleep in bed right now. And you can even think like, oh, it's probably about four o'clock in the morning because I woke up to pee at 3.30. Then I dropped back to sleep doing my lucid dreaming techniques. Now I'm in the dream. that full waking state access. But you know, it's all a hallucination. So yeah. you can walk around like tapping on table. And this is, this sounds so frivolous, but just in the lucid dreams, I go up to a table and go, and you're like, oh my, it made the sound of the knock. Right. And you can feel the grain on the wood. You're like, how does my brain put in the exact feeling of it's the grain It's like the ultimate the
1: virtual reality yeah. machine.
0: And you know, people are listening to listening to this, thinking it sounds like the Matrix, it should. Like, yeah. yeah. I mean, this is like the bit where the baddie in the Matrix is eating the steak. And he says to the other baddie, I know this steak is is a neurological program, but wow, it tastes good. That's the same as a lucid yeah. dream. You can eat and it tastes of stuff wow. of Amazing. like it does in, in the waking state.
1: So so what's fascinating to me that I listen is it, it connects the dots because, you know, talking to Michael Pollan about the effect of hallucinogens on the brain and brain imaging. Mm-hmm. It, it increases the same pathways and the same state of the brain as people who have been meditating for thousands mm-hmm. of hours, like gamma waves, right? Mm-hmm. And in lucid dreaming, I, I wonder if the same thing is happening because there's this part of the brain called the default mode network, mm-hmm. which is where the ego lies, mm-hmm. which gets in our way of becoming mm-hmm. literally awake from a consciousness point of mm-hmm. view, right? It's our ego that thinks we're separate and not connected. Mm-hmm. And the drugs do that; they shut off this default mode network. Mm-hmm. Meditation does that, mm-hmm. and I bet you lucid dreaming does the same thing because if it's inducing the same brain pattern as meditation, and it's it allows you then to access a
0: learning that you can't
1: access when you're awake in your normal state. That of sounds about
0: right. I mean, I haven't seen any research with lucid dreaming specifically mention that default network, but. Yeah, putting the dots together, it sounds like it. You know, the Buddhists would have a very uh, easy answer to this question. They say that once you have lucidity in a dream, you have seven times the power of consciousness. So your conscience is boosted seven times. 7 okay, I'm in trouble
1: because my wife's been doing this for a while and I'm like, you know. And your wife's I'm like, just getting good started. at it,
0: dude. Seriously, Mia is one of the most talented lucid dreamers I've ever worked with. Like I can't believe she hasn't been doing it for like ten years. That's like she's she's kind of an overachiever in pretty much everything she does. Yeah, but she's she's got really good at lucid dreaming, super quick. Like yeah, she'll be running workshops on this within the year, I'm sure. I know I don't get to like snug with her in the morning anymore she's like I'm <laughs> she's dreaming. Like, That's and- much. Dream- That's <laughs> saying my wife. Right? <laughs> my wife's a way better lucid dreamer than me which is super embarrassing, right? <laughs> yeah. And she'll she's a she's a natural lucid dreamer. So I'm mm-hmm. not. I either I, if I don't do the techniques I don't have lucid dreams. But may be quite a good teacher cuz I know about drought. I know when it's not cooking. I know what techniques work what don't. Yeah. Whereas Jade she'll have like two or three uh, lucid dreams a week doing nothing. But she's the only person who seems to be able to have lucid Dreams, even if she's had some wine the night before. You know, yeah. she's a great lucid dreamer.
1: And it's also, a, you know, it's, it's also sort of a place of exploration. There's a, a scientist that I'm good friends with, Rudy Tanzi, who's mm-hmm. one of the leading Alzheimer's research in the world. Oh. He discovered the presenilin genes, which are the Alzheimer's genes. And one night we were at a medical conference and it was late at night, we're in the bar, having a tequila, and I'm mm-hmm. so, so, Rudy, like, how the heck do you figure this stuff out? Like, you know, you're like heading for a Nobel mm-hmm. prize. Like, how do you think about this stuff? Mm-hmm. He's like, you want to know? And I'm like, yeah. I said, he said, uh, well, lucid dreaming. No way. I do lucid dreaming regularly. I've been doing it for 30 years and it's how I work through figuring out my scientific discoveries. And I can ask questions and I can, it's just fascinating. And so. What's th- his name? Rudy Tanzi. Dude, he's I would at love to have that dude. That he's sounds at Harvard, amazing. he's amazing. So obviously the Tibetans didn't work on developing dream yoga, as a party trick, right? Mm-hmm. What What's the purpose of dream yoga within the Tibetan tradition?
0: Okay, so this gets pretty Harry Potter style pretty quick. But okay, you asked the question, so let's it. go there. The primary goal of dream yoga. Well, by the way, dream yoga isn't just Tibetan Buddhist Buddhist lucid dreaming. Dream yoga or, or Milam Naljur is the term given to a series of practices found within Tibetan Buddhism that have lucidity training as their foundation. These include lucid dreaming, but as well as what in the West we call astral projection or out of body experience work and conscious sleeping. Um, but as far as the lucid dreaming stuff, um, the primary so conscious
1: sleeping is different than lucid dreaming.
0: Yeah, so lucid dreaming is is consciousness within REM dreaming sleep. But you could also be conscious within the hypnagogic state, which is kind of like yoga nidra if people have done that. But also, you can be lucid in in light sleep stage two where you're asleep, you're not dreaming, but you're conscious of that. Uh, And you can even um, be lucid in deep sleep. Now science, uh, that one's, they're out on that. They say there's no way you can be lucid within delta wave, man. The brain's like got such low activity. Mm -hmm. How could you be conscious within it? The Buddhists would say that's the highest achievement is actually lucid dreaming is even a stepping stone to that. And it's called the clear light of sleep. And it's consciousness within deep delta wave sleep Um, which is awareness beyond projection. So that's had to be the highest thing. But anyway, for lucid dreaming, the uh, main reason for it is preparation for death and dying. So straight off the bat, Mm -hmm. this goes way deeper than like working with your nightmares. And I mean, working with nightmares is a brilliant way to use lucid dreaming, but straight off the bat, it goes way deeper than that. Because they believe that when you die, sorry, when you fall asleep at night, you get a trial run for death and dying. And the same dissolution of the elements that happen when you fall asleep at night, and the same way that the mind goes from external data gathering, flips inwardly and creates an internal world based on your experience of waking state, which we call dream, right? The same thing happens at death, but at a much larger, on a much larger uh, plane. So the mind, the the mind stream separates from what they'd refer to as the gross corporeal form, separates just like in a classic NDE experience. The mind then flips inwardly and experiences the totality of its own projection. This experience can last up to 49 days. It's called the kind of 49 day Bardo journey, which is what the Tibetan book of the dead or the liberation uh, upon hearing in the Bardo is called. Um, And it's said to be, or a large chunk of that Bardo experience is said to be dreamlike and hallucinatory. So basically here's the kicker. They say, if by the time you die, you have trained the mind to regularly recognize your dreams, as dreams go, Oh wait, this is hallucination. I'm dreaming right now and become conscious. Then at death, when the dreamlike hallucinatory apparitions that appear in the dying process, when that occurs, you'll be able to recognize them. And rather than go, aha, I'm dreaming, you'll go, aha, I'm dead. And I know <laughs> it sounds scary, right? Yeah. But they would say to be able to go, aha, I'm dead, as in I am conscious of the fact that I am dying now, I'm conscious of the fact I am dead, is one of the highest spiritual achievements because I'll wait a while for that. I'm good. Yeah, I'm I mean, I have no now. idea what it works. Good, I'm right? good for now. Like maybe it works. 50 I come back years. as a little kid and be like, <laughs> "Dude, it worked. Keep doing it." <laughs> wow! But it's great for death anxiety. You know? Yeah. I mean, if someone comes in here, puts a gun to my head, okay, yeah, 80 percent of me is going, "No, don't kill me." But honestly, I could say a good 20 percent of me would be going, "Okay, well, right. does 20 does 20 Let's years of go. lucid dreaming work?" Showtime. go. So yeah. maybe it helps us die with a little less anxiety, well, a little bit what, more sense of adventure. Right, I and mean,
1: that's what the uh, psychedelics are being used for yeah. very effectively. And they yeah. seem to have the same. So there's many, there's many doorways into this state of consciousness. But lucid dreaming seems to be one of the best because it's something that is relatively easy to learn. It's something that's accessible to everybody. It's free. Yeah. There's no side effects. Yeah. And it has
0: so many benefits. So and and crucially, you can't get more unconscious than asleep. So imagine these other modalities such as a hypnosis, shamanic journeying, um, psychedelics. Meditation. Um, meditation. You know, you're taking a strand of the conscious mind and bringing it down into the, into the unconscious. In lucid dreaming, you're taking a strand of the consciousness and dropping it right to the bottom of the iceberg simply because you can't get more unconscious than asleep. So I'm not saying that lucid dreaming is better than any of those aforementioned modalities. What I am saying is the depth into the unconscious to which you can go is unparalleled in lucid dreaming. Yeah. However, here's the kicker we could be doing hypnosis, psychedelics, meditation, all this stuff, and we could work that every single day. Could I get lucid every single night? No. So it's less accessible than those others, but seems to go very, very deep in comparison.
1: Mm. It seems, yeah, it seems interesting. And, and it's also, um, you know, if you're not interested in enlightenment or making friends with death, um, there's other benefits, right? I mean, <laughs> If I want to improve my tennis serve, uh, it seems like a really cool technique without a lot of sweat or yeah. screwing up my shoulder, right? So, so like, it, 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 and you mentioned some studies that talk about the neuroplasticity, cool. which yeah. is the, the connections between brain cells that allow you to learn new things and Develop new skills. So can you talk about the science of the neuroplasticity and how it connects to sports
0: performance? Absolutely. So these sports studies go back right back to the 80s when the first thing since they proved lucid dreaming was like, okay, well, if this is true, then maybe we can use it to practice sport and stuff. Essentially, once the prefrontal cortex switches on again with lucidity, like I said before, the brain doesn't think you're having a lucid dream, the brain thinks you're awake. So it will lay down neural pathways in exactly the same way as when you're awake. So if you go into the lucid dream and start practicing squats or start practicing martial arts, or in your case, your tennis serve, your brain thinks you're actually practicing your tennis serve, but in the lucid dream, you're beyond the uh, confines of gravity, you'll be in the confines of speed. So you could do like a hundred tennis serves in like 30 seconds, and it'll lose you. Bam, 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 bam. But the brain doesn't know that. It thinks you've actually done a hundred tennis serves. So when you wake up, those neural pathways towards the act of serving a tennis serve, to so the act of doing a tennis serve, have been kind of and increased. Can I get it in far. every time? I don't know. It's your, it's your dream. <laughs> can. Yeah. And in fact, the last one of those studies, I was part of, it came out in 2000, they, they released it 2019, beginning of this year. Um, I think, but not big, like 25 to 30 martial artists involved. They needed martial artists who were good at lucid dreams. So, okay, I'll do that. Um, and we had to go into the lucid dream state and practice a kick sequence. And then in the waking state, they test whether you get better or worse. 80.3% of the martial artists in that study got better at uh, martial arts through lucid dream training. That's incredible. You know, I was embarrassing when the 20% that did not get better.
1: <laughs> and one of the other studies that came out was that it actually makes you have a bigger brain. So structurally, how does it affect your brain? I
0: don't actually, that study's on my website. So if you've got it, because I can't actually remember what part of the brain it changes, but they've shown that kind of um, people who have regular lucid dreams, there's a certain networking in the brain that actually gets more dense. It gets thicker. So basically you're making a certain part of the brain big. I think it's the part of the brain to do with self-reflective awareness. Yeah. Is that right? Right. right. So it it. helps
1: you be more self-aware. Yeah,
0: because it makes sense. If you're spending all night where, you know, usually when we go to sleep, we start hallucinating. And we believe those hallucinations to be real. That's what dreaming is. Like every night we we hallucinate such realistic experiences, we think we're awake. That's the thing. Most of our dreams we don't know we're dreaming. We think it's reality. Yes. Then we wake up in the morning, prefrontal cortex switches on and we go, Oh, I'm Charlie. That was a dream I was having about being back at school. Maybe this is was. a dream. Yeah, man. Let's reality check to be sure. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so maybe, apparently, if you maybe, have enough of those experiences. Being,
1: waking life is actually the dream. Well,
0: that's the buddhist (laughs) view i mean that's the other thing apart from death and dying it's practicing for lucid living it's said Mm. that every time you have a lucid dream you get a tiny taste of enlightenment because once you become lucid in the dream you see that what you thought was externally existing is an internal projection what you thought was had dualistic objective reality is a non-dual part of the mind and the people who you thought were separate to you are, in fact, non-separate aspects of your own psychology. So they say every time you have, like, a lucid dream, you get a teeny, teeny, teeny taste of full spiritual awakening. And that if you have enough lucid dreams in this life, you might get that experience of lucidity while you're awake. And that full lucidity in the waking state would be Buddhahood. And that is really, Apparently.
1: you know, a powerful thing. I think it makes you more self-reflective, which then yeah. tends to make people happier if they're, if it's true not just narcissistic mm-hmm. or you know obsessive mm-hmm. about your own ego and self but from a real deep consciousness point of view it helps you become a better
0: human being I think so. And here's the cool thing about lucid dreaming. There's nothing to believe. Like if anyone's listening to this podcast and thinking, I don't believe that about the tennis serve. I don't believe that about martial arts. I don't believe that about the nightmares. Try it. Yeah. There's no guru to worship here unless you want to. There's no cult to be part of, no religion you have to be part of. Yeah. It's like, try this stuff. And when people say, how will I know if the lucid dream healing works? How will I know if the nightmares have been integrated? Because you'll stop having the nightmares or because your tennis serve will improve. Like or you'll your, be able your to see it. PTSD will go away. Yeah, it's like you, you won't need to ask. This is the cool thing about lucid dreaming. It maximizes the third of our life that we spend asleep, but it actually, opt by doing that, we optimize the two thirds that we spend awake. Yeah, it when you think about it, state know, changes. Uh, people often,
1: you know, feel like sleep is a waste of time mm-hmm. and, you know, why... Sleep so much, just you can't live life as much. But what you're saying in a way is if you learn how to use your sleep and not be a passive sleeper, mm-hmm. be an active sleeper, mm-hmm. you can actually achieve a lot of things, yeah. which is happiness and better tennis serve. And better tennis serve, and <laughs> <laughs> Bigger, bigger brain, Bigger brain, why not? Let's go for it. <laughs> and, and, that's, um, and that's
0: the cool thing about lucid dreaming. Again, it's happening in REM, which is not restful. So when people are listening to, oh, but it'll make me less rested in the morning. It's like it's happening in REM. And we know that when you look at someone's brain in REM, I mean, you burn calories in REM. The brain's using so much kind of uh, so much blood flow and there's so much neural activity. So you're not resting in dreams anyway. So you might as well make use of that non-rest sleep state to to get lucid. And even if you get lucid every night of your life based on five dream periods a night, still 95% of your dream experience will be non-lucid. So yeah. another thing people worry about, if I have too many lucid dreams, my unconscious won't have space to do its thing. It's like, even if you get lucid every night of your life, firstly, come and teach me because I can't do it. And secondly, still 95% will yeah. be non-lucid. So let's say you get to the stage where you're having one lucid dream a week, about 98% of your dream experience is non-lucid. So don't worry about, you know, impacting your unconscious process or that the dreamer won't like you being in there. It's like, you're a guest like once a week or something.
1: And and there was also an interesting study. that was... Um published uh, in a journal, medical journal, called Mm -hmm. Dreaming, believe it or not, uh, entitled Spontaneous Lucid Dreaming Frequency and Waking Insight. And they found that people who did lucid dreaming had more problem-solving abilities when they are awake and they had more insight about life.
0: Yeah, they became less field dependent, which apparently it means like you think outside the box more, and that's super cool. And they used to think that it was that creative people who thought outside the box more had more lucid dreams. But then this study proved actually it works the other way too. Once you start having loads of lucid dreams, they can then test to show that you're actually becoming more insightful. You're becoming more creative. Yeah, which is super cool. Again, a waking state benefit to this. This isn't this isn't woo woo. You can do this and see if it works. And this it is works, hardcore it- yeah. science
1: in medical journals. That's actually studying the effects of lucid dreaming on isn't that cool man? so many different things but you know that's not why most people are probably interested in it. it's cool and it's great but you know for me it's an interesting exploration because especially as i get older i'm thinking okay well what's on the other side yeah and how do i you know i meditate twice a day i try to do the things i can to be conscious i journal i i am self-reflective i do yoga I, I try to do the things that i think are going to help me be more present conscious and in, in a way, uh, lucid, uh, but, uh, it feels like I'm missing the boat. <laughs> and I feel that there's this opportunity that we all have that nobody's talking about, I mean, except for you and your book dreams of awakening, which I encourage everybody to get a copy of, um, which is a great title because, you know, we have dreams of dreams, but we don't have necessarily dreams that help us be awake. So it's, it's like a very paradoxical idea, which is you yeah. dream to become awake.
0: Isn't right. it weird? Yeah. So, dude, for one, it sounds like you're doing loads already doing your meditation, your yoga, all that stuff. So brilliant. And uh, here's an interesting fact for you guys who might be watching is that Mark actually did his meditation before the podcast. Now I lived in a Buddhist center for almost eight years, right? So I know a lot of people talk about meditation, including myself. This dude actually does tw- <laughs> he was like before the podcast, I'm gonna need to sit and went and did like 20 minutes of meditation. So he's for real, guys. You could like you right, can trust yeah. his stuff. All but right. yeah, if you were to add lucid dreaming to your already you know, great lucidity practice in the day, man. Yeah, for a lot of people, that can be the missing piece of the puzzle. It can really, really start things cooking even more. Yeah,
1: it's it's pretty interesting. And I think the, the um, benefits around trauma are fascinating. So tell us about your work with the veterans and okay. PTSD and the science here, because, uh, you know, a lot of these veterans, I, I have a friend who, um, you know, was in Africa, and he was in war zones mm. and civil war Mm. and bombs going off and Mm. highly threatening situations and he's just an extraordinary guy very sensitive guy but he just suffers every night with
0: nightmares Mm. and ptsd Mm. and trauma and how would this help somebody like that okay so i'm not saying it can help everybody Mm. but for some people lucid dreaming and the mindfulness of dream and sleep stuff seems to help uh people and veterans who have ptsd um and the The nightmares that come with it. So, this started for me about six or seven years ago when a veteran of the parachute regiment called Keith McKenzie came to one of my lucid dreaming retreats. So, he turns up in this retreat. He's got some serious nightmares, not only from his time as a para, but actually from his 20 years in the fire service. He made a very good point to me. He said, Wow, actually, it's the blue light services, man. He's like, Yeah, the army, of course, very intense and very traumatic things happen. But he said, Actually, 20 years of being a fireman, where every day you're seeing death, you're saving life. He's like, That's what Really gave me the, the PTSD yeah. nightmares. Yeah. Anyway, so he came on retreat, really bad PTSD nightmares. By the end of the four-day retreat, his nightmares had stopped. Um, so I thought, okay, well, he's the first veteran I've ever met. Apart from family members, it seemed to work for him. And a couple of years later, he, rings me, he uh, emails me and says, uh, I've now become a mindfulness teacher. I've done my teacher training and I'm running mindfulness retreats for veterans, You know, taught by veterans to veterans. Do you want to come and do some of the lucid dreaming stuff? And initially I was like, ah, oh, dude, I know it worked really well for you, but I have no experience with this. You know, this is, I don't even know whether it's, it, it, it'll work. I, I don't know whether the veterans will like me. Like, I just felt really unsure. He said, come along and do it. So I came along and just did, I think a day on the five day retreat, first of all. Um, and that night we had like one guy, he hadn't slept for more than four hours since, uh, a night since he could remember, and he slept all the way through the night. Wow! And we did the dream circle, the sharing the next morning. And this guy's in tears going, uh, going I did it. I freaking did it. I did it. And he's crying. And I was like, I didn't quite get what he meant. I thought he meant he'd had a lucid dream or something, but actually it was simply he'd slept through the night. And I was like, wow, man, His, that's it. It's not actually about lucid dreaming and having these big things back. Can I help these people sleep? So then for the next couple of years, I developed this thing that I now refer to as mindfulness of dream and sleep. Yeah, we're um, just going to
1: ask you about this. Is yeah. It, so this a holistic a, approach that takes people through that process of how do you do it? So t- tell us about what are the three practices of mindfulness, yeah. dream, and sleep?
0: So mindfulness of dream and sleep, it does, have like, it does have lucid dreaming in it. So we just did a veterans retreat two weeks ago. So this is now three years into the process. Uh, and on the last day, we have a module of lucid dreaming. But on the first day, we have normalization. So you basically do a big class on how sleep works what happens in each stage and how trauma affects each stage of sleep so we say okay this is the hypnagogic state when you're in this state trauma may appear in this way and this way and this way then we move into light sleep light sleep happens at this time of night the traumatized Brain might affect it in this way, this way, this way. So, we did a long session just normalizing it, talking about how the role of nightmares, how they're here, they're the mind trying to heal itself. You know, nightmares are a sign that there's an active healing process occurring. Um, so, destigmatization of nightmares, normalization of the sleep process, um, being okay with uh, uh, nighttime wakefulness. So, if they wake up, think, okay, that's cool, get out of bed, I want you to do something. Like, what? I thought I just had to wait there till I fell asleep. No, don't associate your bed with failure. You wake up, get up, read a book, go back later. And that night, I mean, this is just a couple of weeks ago, so this one's fresh. Um, four, there were four guys on the retreat out of 20 who had really serious kind of sleep issues. Um, three of them slept through the night, seven or eight hours, two nights in a row. Um, one of them slept so long that he missed breakfast. And when you're in a trauma-sensitive retreat, someone doesn't turn up for breakfast. There was some concern. Let's put it like right. that. And uh, Keith, the guy who runs the retreat, Keith McKenzie, he's the boss guy. He said, "You know, have you have you seen this guy?" I said, "No." And he went, "Oh well, you know, let's let's check his room." He went in there, and he had slept all the way through. He came out taking an earplug out, and goes, "What time is it?" And he goes, "Dude, it's like 10, 10 o'clock in the morning. You've missed the meditation. You missed breakfast. He went, breakfast, my eggs." And then he's all he concerned about is eggs, and go and get his eggs, but. <laughs> he hadn't slept. He was one of the guys who hadn't slept more than five hours in like years. He slept for I and know it like ten or eleven the
1: hours. Practices you taught. It wasn't because they necessarily got lucid at that moment? No,
0: by that day, that was the first night. All we'd done is normalization and we have done the breath work practice. So then I teach also something called coherent breathing or I offer something called coherent breathing. I'm still, I'm yet to do the teacher training. Uh, brilliant organization, Body, Breath, Mind run by uh, Patricia Gerberg and Richard Brown. They are a, a couple New York based uh, psychiatrists mm. and they do brilliant work with veterans. Mm. Um, and I've done some training with them. I want to do a lot more uh, and their coherent breath work um, we offered that to the veterans, so a certain breathing um, system they can do before bed. Things like creating a safe space around the bed, uh, yoga nidra that they can do in the daytime, and uh, nap practices they can do. Um, breathing practices they can do, especially for if you wake up in the second half of the night, this breathing's perfect. When you first go to sleep at night, this breath works perfect. So we give a lot of tools. And then the final day, we look at lucid dreaming. Uh, but actually the mindfulness of dream and sleep stuff is not about giving people lucid dreams and out-of-body experiences and all this kind of sexy stuff. It's really ground level stuff saying, can I help people to, to sleep, to not be terrified of mm-hmm. that third of our life we spend asleep? sleep? And that makes me feel really That's good. That's pretty awesome. Like, I, that like, two weeks ago, I was actually thinking to myself, "Why do I do anything?" I know this is a weird thing to say, but and it's, I don't really believe it. But I was asking myself, "Why am I doing anything else?" Yeah. Because in that retreat with the veterans, I helped. I I was of more benefit as a person in those five days than I was in the last like five months of teaching kind of the civilian population. It did make me think like, yeah, if we're here on this earth to serve. Then Lucid Dream is great and that the book's about it and I like teaching people it. But when I work with the veterans, like that makes yes. me, people that makes really me sleep it. well. I'm like, people who really need yeah, it. they really and, need You it.
1: know, there's so much trauma. Oh, so, so much. much trauma. I mean, you know, one in four Americans probably around the world, who knows what the number is, but have suffered sexual abuse. Wow. And, you know, adverse childhood experiences are so predictive of later problems in life whether it's relationship problems health problems mm-hmm. financial problems mm-hmm. so you know if there's a methodology for working with that it's so powerful because people get stuck in that it's such a it's such a gift right yeah so the the the, the, the lucid dreaming seems to have powerful biological effects mm-hmm. effects on your brain mm-hmm. learning insight memory problem solving all sounds great but uh, how the heck do you do it? <laughs> right? What, like, what is what are the steps? Because okay. it's not some airy-fairy weird thing that you just kind of have to hope happens in the middle of the night. Yeah. Uh, the Tibetans have had this secret practice for thousands of years, and it's been broken down into methodology yeah. that you can follow that I see my wife do, and that works. So yeah. tell me about what is
0: the process of learning lucid dreaming? What are the steps, and what do yeah. you do? I always think it's interesting when you find a set of practices that several ancient traditions do lead and lead to the same result. I'm like, okay, well, they can't all be crazy, right? So the thing about lucid dreaming is you find it, it's got at least 1,000 years of tradition in Tibetan Buddhism. It's got at least 1,000 years also in the Toltec Mexica tradition with the Mexica were a, a group of spiritual practitioners in the place that is now called Mexico. So Mexica means people of the navel of the moon. And they were these shamanic uh, uh, practitioners from, from Mexico and they had a whole set of lucid dreaming practices using breath work, using a lot of the same techniques that we use today and, and techniques similar to the Tibetans to do the same thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, a lot of people who grew up in the 70s probably heard of Carlos Castaneda. Exactly, yeah. Well, all the Toltec stuff. Yeah.
0: The, the teachings of Don Juan. and yeah. You wrote books about dream. Exactly. So we've got the Mexicans rocking it. We've got the Tibetans rocking it. And we've got the Sufis rocking it. There's a whole lucid dream tradition in in, uh, Sufi Islam. You're like, okay, well, these three big traditions, there's probably something to it, right? And if you look at the techniques, they all are based on the same kind of functionality. I mean, different names and different aspects, but the same thing. So they're there are things you can do while you're falling asleep. So as you're falling asleep and you pass through that hypnagogic state, which is that natural state. What is that?
1: What is that hypnagogic state?
0: um, So this is a natural... It's like stage one of sleep. So your eyes are closed, you're super drowsy. You might have that feeling of heaviness in your body. You might get the jerks, you ever get, Ugh! as you're falling asleep. They're called myocloptic jerks, which are super fun. Myoclonic jerks. Myoclonic jerks. Oh, sorry, I'm here with a doctor. <laughs> 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 Please che- like check any of my <laughs> my terrible medical sorry. knowledge. Yeah. Um, so we've got this hypnagogic state. Uh, you look at the brainwaves like deep alpha and theta, which is like exactly the same brain waves of, as uh, hypnotherapists would put you in. So essentially you're getting this natural state of hypnosis when you fall asleep. So the first aspect, is kind of essentially self-hypnotic induction. So as you're passing through the hypnagogia, as you're falling asleep, you'll be reciting things like, next time I'm dreaming, I know that I'm dreaming. Next time I'm dreaming, I know that I'm dreaming. Or well, the Mexican one's super cool. It's like I am a warrior of the dream state. I Ooh, stay I lucid one, and conscious it. while dreaming. I am a warrior of the dream state. I stay lucid and conscious while dreaming. Now that's super cool. So you respond is that the way I do because I'm into like martial arts and like warriors. <laughs> right. stuff. My wife's like, ah, oh, the warrior one. Nah, that doesn't do it for you me. I'm I want to go in with
1: ones. my yeah. sword. You know. Yeah,
0: exactly. So if you know, there's a there's a technique for everyone, but I'd say. Um, These kind of self-hypnotic techniques, that's kind of one aspect you find in all the traditions. Uh, The others are daytime practices. Essentially, we dream about what we do in the daytime often. So if we spend our whole day in this kind of blinkered um, view of reality, where we're on autopilot the whole time, we're not kind of fully experiencing, we're we're definitely not lucid in our daytime, we're going to dream the same way. So a lot of the practices are- So said, if we're
1: asleep and we're awake, we're going to be asleep when we're asleep. Basically, <laughs>
0: exactly, exactly that, yeah. So a lot of practices you do in the day, so like waking state meditation mindfulness practice, reality checking. So through the day, asking yourself, could this be a dream now? And the classic Castanadian hand check thing, where you ask yourself if you're dreaming, you look at your hand, you flip your hand, you check how many fingers you've got, then eventually you start dreaming about that. But in the dream, often your hands do weird things. You might have an extra finger or something like that. Now the Tibetans have exactly the same technique, but they don't use the hand. They would be every time you experience the dreamlike nature of phenomena while you're awake, do not ignore it, stop, pause and ask oneself, Am I truly awake? So you find the same things. And there's another one in the Mexican tradition, same thing. So then you have waking state practices, mindfulness, meditation, energy work, qigong, stuff to boost your awareness in the waking state. So you're more likely to have boost awareness at night.
1: Mm -hmm. And then- sort of like training wheels during the day. Just get the grease, you
0: know. And then there's working with the actual sleep cycle itself. So like the Mexicans have got this great thing where before bed they would, uh, the Mexica, sorry, before bed they'd drink uh, some fig wine, which is like a diuretic makes them pee, right? So they'd take, I think they'd take a shot and they'd throw one to the moon, one to the earth, and then you were allowed two shots yourself, three, and it was disrespectful, but you could have two. And they knew that they would make you need to pee about four hours later. And they were aware, as we now know from medical science, that after the first three sleep cycles, roughly 90 minutes per cycle, so about four and a half hours into sleep, we move from long periods of delta uh, deep sleep into uh, with little bits of dreaming to long periods of dreaming with much less delta. So they knew it. They knew that we had more dreams in the second half of the night. Um, so That's was- true,
1: I've got an aura ring. Oh, and, cool. And I can see, you know, I go into deep sleep early on. I want and then to get one of those. Almost all the REM you can see happens really before you wake up, you know, in the two or three hours of dreaming before you wake up. Exactly,
0: yeah. Those last two hours are like the golden hour for for REM. So the the third main group of uh, techniques is working with the sleep cycle. So as lucid dreamers, like when I run the lucid dreaming intensive retreats, um, during the day you're learning lucid dreaming and meditation, all this kind of stuff. But then at night, the real kind of uh, the thing that people come for, some of them, is let's say you bed down at 10 30 10 30 to 3 30 you sleep in your room get a good five hours of deep delta wave sleep under your belt don't mess with it but then if you want and about two-thirds of the group will choose to do this like a group of 50 like maybe 30 of them will do it they will set their alarm for 3 30 in the morning they will wake up they will move into the shrine room where they'll have bed number two set up so they'll have like a camping bed thing and then I will then guide them into sleep for another hour and a half, and then wake them up ninety minutes later with the Tibetan bowls. Everyone's sitting up, writing down their dreams. I give them another lucid dreaming technique. They drop in ninety minutes later, wake them, write down your dreams, drop in. So you have like four wake ups a night. Now you it don't. Sounds like you're going to be exhausted after that because you're going to be up the whole night. Making the, it's i sometimes the, the first like the first session three <laughs> like, thirty to five. I never sleep. I'm like mother hen. I'm like, are they okay? Oh, he's snoring. What do I do? What do I do? Um, but then, yeah, I soon chill out. We remove the snores. We make sure everyone's comfortable. Remove the snores. Yeah, we, yeah, we, we, got, a, we got strict rules, loving strict rules on snores. And essentially that's Put about- Put pillow over their head. Yeah, just do that. That's that sort of- <laughs> If you fall asleep once and wake up once in the morning, you've got one chance. One chance to remember your dreams, one chance to have a lucid dream or to, have, you know, perhaps to have a lucid dream. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas if some crazy guy wakes you four times a night, you've just quadrupled your chances of success. Mm. So I'm not saying you do this every night but maybe once a week, you can have these lucid dreaming date nights where you intentionally do multiple wake-ups to allow yourself multiple chances for lucidity.
1: And I wake up in the middle of the night, my wife's gone, I'm like, where'd you go? Like, oh yeah, because she going- does all of those, man. What's
0: going on yeah. here? <laughs> Amir's pretty badass about we doing We didn't have a wake-ups. fight, why is she out of bed? <laughs> <laughs> so the point is, this is a learnable skill. Yeah. Whether it's self-hypnosis, induction techniques, meditation techniques, working with your sleep cycle, you can you can learn how to lucid dream. Like people listening to this can learn.
1: Yeah, I had I, you know I have learned it by osmosis from my wife because she does all the reality check yeah. stuff with her hands. And you know I I was dreaming the other night and I dreamt that my father who had just died uh-huh. was sitting in front of me in a lecture hall. And I went up to him and I said, Dad, what's going on? I thought you died and did you come back? And did you learn anything? Uh-huh. And of course, he said he didn't really learn anything, which was sort of disappointing. Oh, interesting. But um. That was just who he was. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And then I, I saw my sister. I'm like, "What is going on? This is so weird." Dad's alive. Like, and I'm like, "Oh crap! Am I dreaming?" And then I did the hand check yeah. in my dream, and then my hands got all distorted yes. and weird, and my fingers misshapen. That's it, man. And I'm like, "Oh my god, I'm dreaming." Yes. And then I had a little fun and jumped on the side of a car and <laughs> like while I was driving, just flew along with it and. You know, it was so
0: amazing, and I was like, "Wow, this is like, dude, you know. that's it." You know, that is a textbook lucid dream, right? So you went and you spotted a dream sign, which would be any aspect of the dream that can reliably indicate you're dreaming, as in dead relatives, like my dad. Yeah. Is your dead. brain then went, in, your mind then went into confabulation, where we start to explain away the dream, we try and make sense of it, right? But because of your lucid dream training in the day, checking your hands, doing those reality boosting your awareness. You remember to do that in the dream, and you became lucid. well.
1: I didn't do any lucid dream training. My wife was doing it, but I was just well getting it rubbed off great. on me
0: from her. You got it, man.
1: And I remember one time I was um, it was after my sister died as well, mm. I, which was about seven years ago. I, I, um, it was very traumatic. She had cancer, mm. and uh, it was a very difficult death. And and she was really resisting death because she was relatively mm. young, and she had two kids, and she didn't want to leave them. And she was a single parent. It was just a really tough mm. situation, and. After I took a trip with my daughter to Bhutan, which we'd planned a long time ago, and it just timing worked out, and literally she died, you know, on the 9th and the 19th, we were in Bhutan. Mm. And we went trekking every day at 14,000 feet. There's no EMFs, there's no cell phones, Mm. there's nothing. And you're sleeping in a tent. And every night I would have these incredibly lucid Mm. dreams of her coming back, saying, you know, that she wanted to have one more chance. Wow. You know, and... It was a repetitive dream and it was different each time, Uh but they were so, I mean, I remember them to this day because they were so lucid and I I knew I was dreaming and I knew she, she was dead and Mm -hmm. I knew it was, this was all strange. And I then went to the, after to Bhutan, I went into India to a Tibetan monastery Mm -hmm. with uh, this man who was the abbot of the bun, which is the pre-Tibetan, Mm-hmm. Buddhist religion of Tibet. Mm-hmm. So it's like ancient. The Dalai mm-hmm. Lama is like the 14th Dalai Lama. This mm-hmm. is like the 33rd Abbot. Mm-hmm. And this dude was a shaman. He you know, was incredibly skilled. He was the Dalai Lama's meditation teacher. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned this story to him. He's like, oh, when did she die? And he calculated the dates. And he's like, yeah. oh, she's in this state of transition and in she's Nevada. stuck <laughs> and we can help her. So they got nine reincarnated Lamas and him. Whoa. And they did this three or four hour ritual, and I was there the whole time. And uh, you know, he was flipping his you know robe over his head and talking to her. It was it was strange. I mean, as a Western trained doctor scientist, yeah. it was strange. Whoa. But it was so powerful. And then after that, all the dreams stopped, and wow. sh- I felt like she was free. And then I started having dreams of her being grateful and happy huh. and thanking me for helping her kids. And it was just this wild. set, and I I I. I those were all lucid dreams and it was all in this state of really deep, like emotional, you know, raw state that I was in because of my sister died. You know, it was just so it's really fascinating. And I think, you know, we Yeah, man. I mean
0: that's yeah, that's like a <laughs> Yeah. I get told a lot of stories about lucid dreaming. That's a big one, man.
1: Yeah. yeah. That's a big one. Yeah, wow. it was and it was very healing for me then to go through that. Yeah. And, but it it was I was like wow there's a whole other universe out there that we are just not yeah. exploring and and what's so beautiful about what you're teaching what's so beautiful about this practice is that it's it's you know it's it's um, not just a fun thing to do because mm. you can go flying mm. or have sex in your dream but it actually is a way to to sort of build a relationship with your unconscious yeah. which is very hard for us to access mm-hmm. and it's very hard for us to be awake and the whole purpose of wakefulness in the sense of, you know, being literally awake to your experience is to be happy, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, like happiness is sort of the, you know, it's not only Thomas Jefferson who was talking about happiness, it was Buddhist and the Dalai Lama. It's Mm -hmm. how do you be in a state of love, of Mm -hmm. compassion, Mm -hmm. of kindness, Mm -hmm. of unreactivity, Mm -hmm. of understanding that you're not your ego, Mm -hmm. that you're not your identity that you Mm -hmm. kind of have as a sort of daily living being, but Mm -hmm. that you have this other state of consciousness that you can Play with and explore and ask questions of and get answers to. So that's that whole realm we haven't even talked about. But like, what it, what is, what is the way that you interact with your dreams if you're exploring your mind? Because mm. that's a whole other realm we haven't talked about. We mm. talked about you know PTSD. We talked about nightmares. We talked about mm-hmm. you know improving your tennis serve. This <laughs> all sounds great. We talked about you know actually experiencing a, a more wakefulness in a sense when you're awake or mindfulness. But there's a whole nother level here that yeah. isn't
0: really something we talk about much. So what, what is that? Okay, so I think, first of all, a unique aspect of lucid dreaming is the fact that psychological concepts become personified in the lucid dream. Simply because everything's your psychology in the lucid dream, or well, 99% of everything in, in the lucid dream is your psychology. So in the lucid dream, you can meet fear. You can, meet, you can, you can become lucid and call out, fear, come to me and some sort of representation or personification of fear will appear. It might be a cloud of red smoke. It might be the bully from school. It might be, you know, I've- Harold Robbins. It's so interesting. (laughs) From third grade. (laughs) I can see him now. (laughs) There you go. So you see, so psychological concepts become personified. You can meet with them, you can interact with them, and because everything's symbolic, because everything's representative, You can engage a type of healing within the lucid dream through, I would say, the most obvious kind of representation of unity, which is the hug. So I'd say if someone gets lucid tonight, right, and they're like, oh, what do I do in my lucid dream? If you forget everything else, run around and hug everything. Because if you acknowledge that everything in the lucid dream is you, it's all a kind of three-dimensional representation of your own psyche, then show love to your own psyche and you are going to wake up feeling really freaking good. So hug everything in the So if you
1: dream. see a zombie, hug oh, the zombie? Oh, hug the
0: zombies. Because what's a zombie a symbol of? A part of your mind. Mu- well, what is a zombie? This is cool zombies, right? Zombies <laughs> are things that used to be alive, are now dead, but are still animated. That sounds like an old habit to me. Yeah. So if you get lucid and you ever see a zombie in your lucid dream, that's probably a, a representation of an old habit, an old program from childhood that's dead but still animated by our, our lack of self-worth, or whatever it is, and is walking through our dreams. So definitely hug zombies, hug scary things and call out to meet it. I mean, I had this kickboxing uh, competition a couple of months ago. I had quite a lot of fear around it. and
1: Yeah, me too. I'd be scared to death <laughs> to go into a kickboxing
0: <laughs> ring. Oh, well, I, I love it. But there was still, there was still some fear around it because of, the, the, uh, of who I was fighting. I knew he was a very good martial artist, blah, blah, blah. So I thought, okay, Um, I've done a lot of work of kind of meeting fear, meeting the shadow, meeting sexuality in the lucid dream. But I wanted to see, could you be so specific that you could meet an actual aspect of fear linked to part of your everyday life? So I became lucid and I call out in the lucid dream, fear of the kickboxing fight. Very specific, fear of the kickboxing fight. And this dude appears. He's this big Japanese guy, like, which is not what my partner looked like. He's big Japanese guy. I Ripped. guess representate. I did. I couldn't tell. He was in kind of long clothes. But he was big, right, and scary. And suddenly he appears on a sofa, and I'm like, "Oh, are, are you it? Are you the fear of the fight?" And he just scowls at me, and I was like, "Okay, I'll take that as a yes." And I think, okay, what do I do? I hug him. He's a representation of my fear. He's split off as all things that we fear are. I need to bring him into unity through love and compassion. So I go over and I hug him and he's big, man. And my arm is around him and he's tense. And I'm like, I love you, man. I love you, man. I love you, man. And then he releases, boom. And I go back and he's smiling. And I'm like, this is so cool. The lucid dreaming is a biofeedback mechanism. Uh I'm seeing that I've just integrated an aspect of that fear. And then I hadn't really thought what to do next, and I thought, "Oh, the martial arts training study thing that I that I failed in, so I'll try that again." So, I'm, dude, so if you're my representation of the fear, can we train together? And he goes, "Yes." And then he stands up, and he's massive, and I go, "Okay, let's stretch." So he gets my foot and he puts it on his shoulder, and then I go, "Wait, it's a dream. You can go higher." And he goes, "And stretches my leg right up into splits." And of course, I'm thinking the neural pathways. I want to be able to do splits in the waking state. No, that didn't work. But <laughs> anyway, and then we start training together. We're doing shallow boxing together, and then I wake up. The main thing wasn't what happened in the dream. It was the fact that even after 20 years of doing this, I found this other level. I was like, whoa, you can literally meet specific fears, real life fears, and integrate them. And when I went to that kickboxing fight, I mean, there was anxiety, of course, but the fear, nah, It was much, much less. And I'm almost certain it was to do with that dream. I can't tell you my changing my neural pathways, all that. I have no idea. Did you win the fight? Yeah. Um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> I was kind of hoping you would ask that. Right. The fight ended up being a no contest oh. because I broke my nose and had to stop. Oh, no. Um, so final round. Uh, you broke round. your own nose or he Basically, broke your he nose? Ducks, he comes up, an accidental headbutt, oh. breaks my nose. Um, I then go over to the the, the ref, then uh, stops it. I go over to the um, uh, medical person comes in and she looks and goes, you've broken your nose. And then goes... And she crunches it. And I hear, and it was like kind of a, like wet wood. And I was like, oh God. And so you would think you just give up at that point. But in the state of mind I was in, which is not very mindful, obviously I then turned to the ref and go, how long left? And he goes, 30 seconds. And I looked to my corner. I was about to say, I'll carry on. And then luckily my brother was in the corner with my coach and he just went, He did the sign of like, kill it. And I was like, okay, no, we're going to stop.
1: Oh, my God. So it
0: ended up being a no contest. But it was a friend who I, an acquaintance I was fighting, and he was very sorry. And it was whatever. But, uh, but yeah. Well, you know, it's
1: interesting. You you talk about, you know, these dark forces that we have in our consciousness that can show up, Mm -hmm. um, fears and, yeah,
0: yeah, fears and traumas. traumas And, and, um, and I was speaking
1: to somebody who does lucid dreaming, and he said that, you know, you have to be careful that it's not, um, necessarily okay always to interact with some of the dark forces in your dreams can you explain that because it's a little different than what you're saying which is go up and hug the zombie
0: (laughs) well the thing is the lucid every time you have a lucid dream you're having a lucid dream because the unconscious has let you in it's like to think that our itsy bitsy egoic sense of self can in any way control that awesome power of the unconscious is like a sailor thinking they can control the sea Mm. it's like an arrogant sailor who thinks they can control the sea The sailor can do is get to know the ocean so well, get to know the tides, the currents, the where the sea monsters lie, that they can sail as if they were in control. So, first of all, when we get lucid, to think that we could call up a trauma that didn't want to be called up is to underestimate the intelligence we're working with. You know, Carl Jung talked about there being a inherent an inherent safety mechanism within the psychic apparatus that strives for a balance between dark and light. And that quote's from his work on the shadow. He was basically saying the shadow will only give you what you're ready for. Now, I've got some great examples of this in play. For example, a woman, she had a dream plan. She wanted to meet her seven-year-old self. Mm -hmm. I asked her why. And she said, when I was seven, there was some kind of abuse that happened. uh, And I thought, like you say, you can meet representations. I could meet the representation of the little girl and hug her and say it's not her fault and to show her love. Um, So my initial reaction, oh, okay, that's a brilliant dream plan. How long have you been lucid dreaming for? She went, I've never had a lucid dream before whoa so your first lucid dream you want to do this and she's <laughs> like yeah you said you know anything's possible in the lucid dream so I'm on like closed retreat with this woman and, and several other people in Wales and I want to ring my teacher to go like this is beyond my pay grade you know what would my teacher say so I I went back to these quotes and I have two teachers, Lama Yeshe Rinpoche, the Tibetan Buddhist Lama, and a guy called Rob Nen, who's a a Jungian psychologist and actually a criminologist at Cape Town University for many decades. who specializes in work with the shadow and uh, uh, Buddhist teaching too. And I remember that quote. And I remember also in my experience, once I got lucid and tried to visit Buddhist heaven, the kind of dewa chen, this heavenly realm. And mm. I got lucid and I called out, dewa chen, take me to dewa chen. You know, like kind of take me to Nirvana. Yeah, right. Nothing happened. Call well, that yeah, like, yeah. second time, nothing happened. <laughs> Third time, I call it out, a woman with a clipboard walks into the dream, walks up to me and goes- um, You're not on the list. <laughs> yeah, she literally looked down and went, she went, dewa chen, you're not ready for that. And I wake up. I was like, whoa, that's <laughs> so cool. So I was pretty sure that if she, if she wasn't ready to meet the seven-year-old self, number one, she wouldn't get lucid. It's her first night anyway, who gets lucid on their first night? And number two, if she did, the dream would know what to offer her. You know, the, yeah. the intelligence of the lucid dream is higher than waking state intelligence, mm-hmm. not less. We're dealing with mm-hmm. more of the uh, more of the intelligence of the mind. So that night she did become lucid. She called out for a seven-year-old self and the dream blocked it. She called out uh, three times. On the third one, she called that seven-year-old self, come for me, dream blocks it again. But in front of her, in the lucid dream, a door appears. And on the door is a sign that says, caution. I mean, how cool is that, the symbolism? And she was so sweet. She said, I was in the lucid dream. and I thought, you know, what do I do? It's a door that says, caution. Don't go there. No, she thought, if it's locked, I'll take that as a symbol. If it's open, I will proceed with caution. So she pushed the door it opened. And as soon as she stepped through the door, this three-story building appeared. And on each floor of the building was a different symbolic representation of the abuse. And one of the rooms, it was full of vomit. There's something to do with she was forced to eat till she's sick, I think. Uh, well, I know, actually, sorry. And she walked into this room full of vomit. And again, she's so sweet. that you know, how do I hug a room full of vomit? You know, but she walked into it. <laughs> I set you free. You know, I set you. She kind of hugged it with her mind and through affirmations. And she had a... a Big healing release. Amazing. Um, And I had to speak to her about a a year or so ago because I wanted to include that in my new book, Dreaming Through Darkness, because the the case study of her is in the book. And she said, yeah, yeah, include it in the case study. But please know that that lucid dream didn't heal me. It began my healing. Yeah. said, after that lucid dream, the possibility of entering into therapy and talking about what happened opened up. The possibility of talking to family members who were involved opened up. Mm. She was like, the lucid dream wasn't the silver bullet. Cracked the door cured. open. Yeah, it cracked. Oh, wow, like the dream. That's so cool.
1: Yes, it cracked the door open. So, so emotional healing, psychological healing, nightmares, trauma, abuse. Mm-hmm. What about physical healing? Is that possible in a dream? Can okay, you heal so others? Can you heal
0: yourself? I mean, now we're way out of kind of, science fact here, uh, yeah. but we have anecdotal reports that it seems that lucid dreaming can lead to some sort of uh, physical healing for for minor ailments. Um, you know, I've never heard of anyone kind of using lucid dreaming to cure cancer or anything like that, but there are a lot of anecdotal reports that people have used lucid dreaming to engage healing on minor ailments. Now, whether that's working as the placebo effect uh, or whether it's some kind of powerful type of visualized healing, like the Simiton method, you know, where you kind of visualize um, uh, colored lights surrounding mm-hmm. the point of inflammation. Mm-hmm. And if you've got really strong visualization, the waking state, some people that really helps. It makes them feel more relaxed stuff mm-hmm. like that. The lucid dream is a 100% visualization. You can't get more of a visual space than that. <laughs> no, way. it's true. So it sounds like if you do visualize healing within the lucid dream, and add to that, that huge placebo effect of the mind within the mind, mm. You know, if it's the mind effect in the body, and if the lucid dream is a three-dimensional representation of the mind, okay, that seemed like it could work very powerfully. Yeah. I mean, the story I'll share is, is a good one because it it's, it shows both sides. My friend Bruno, uh, he had uh, kidney problems, heard about potential of lucid dream healing, became lucid. In the lucid dream, he puts his dream hands on his dream kidneys. I think he called that an affirmation, something like immune system boost. Um, but the main thing was he felt electricity coming out of his hands into his kidneys. In fact, so much so he fell on the floor. So very short lucid dream. Uh, he said that after that dream, his creatine levels, which you tell me as a doctor, but something to do, yeah. oh, is that it? something to do with the kidneys? Creatinine, yeah. creatinine levels stabilized for like six months after yeah. the lucid dream. Now six months later, the disease returned and he had to have a kidney removed. Now I found out about that like a year later after the book was published and stuff. And I was like, dude, why didn't you tell me? And he said, well, cause I, I it failed, it didn't work. I said, dude, for six months, those levels stabilized after Lucid Dream. Yeah, Lucid Dreaming, it isn't like a silver bullet. But you gotta it do it again. it can boost immune Might need spot. another dose. Yeah, well, so, you know, this, it, it, so I, mean, I don't think a sci- it's a silver
1: bullet, but I think no. it can help. I mean, from the scientific point of view, the greatest pharmacy in the world is between your ears.
0: Ah, cool. <laughs> and,
1: and there's people who know how to access that in ways that are really, Crazy, but mm. have been scientifically proven. Mm. One of them is by a guy named Wim Hof, yeah. who uses breath techniques, Tibetan techniques, yep. to regulate his autonomic nervous system, yeah. his automatic nervous system, regulate his immune system. He's had toxic bacteria yeah, virus injected yes. into his blood that would normally cause a severe septic infection that would kill people. And he literally can switch on his immune system to fight that infection and have no reaction he can go out and climb Mount Everest in his shorts and bare feet simply using these techniques to control his biology. So I imagine with lucid dreaming, that's also possible. That's
0: nice. And he can teach it to others. When I read that, I found the most amazing thing was it wasn't only him in the research. He had five people with him who had taught things. They couldn't do it quite as well as him, but they also had immune response. Yeah, I mean, if that's in the waking state through breath, then okay, lucid dream. You know, if if I wasn't talking to Dr. Nath, it was kind of a Buddhist podcast. I'd go into the whole Buddhist thing seven times the power of mind. We have the healing potential in us. I'm just being, I'd rather be super Okay, you can say that. You can say that. (laughs) Um, I mean, I worked on my eyes. Like my eyesight's actually got worse now. Um, In about a year ago, it started to go. uh, For now, short sight, uh, uh, whatever it is. Things close to me, but maybe that's old age. But for a good six years, um, I didn't have to wear glasses. Um, I used to wear glasses. You check my early YouTube videos, I'm in glasses. And I was talking at a... um, music festival once about how I worked with an ear infection through lucid dream healing uh, and all this earwax started pouring out. I actually woke up with the earwax pouring out. So a physical response to a lucid dream healing. And I kind of got like heckled basically. This dude on stage said, uh, like this festival, oh, why don't you heal your eyes then? And I was so embarrassed. I went bright red and I was, oh, well, you know, uh, uh, some things are unhealed. I just right, right, like right, it, right, and right, I didn't right, know what right. I was saying. And then I, I thought, well, what's the likelihood of this dude turning up at this talk and challenging me, I should try it. Yeah. So I tried it and I took about two or three lucid dreams. I try and do hands-on healing in the lucid dream, calling out these Buddhist mantras and stuff. And then I think the third or fourth one, I was about to do the hands-on healing, good, harness the placebo effect, really go for it. And then a voice, my voice over an intercom in the lucid dream went, Charlie, there is a conflict in your eyes. The reason you can't see long distances is there's a conflict in your eyes. And I almost turned around to see like who said it. And I was like, there's a conflict. Wow. Yeah, I guess most illness or disease is based on a conflict of some sort. So in the lucid dream, I yell out, my eyes are free of conflict. My eyes are free of conflict. And the dream starts shaking like, a, like an earthquake. And even in the dream, I was like, oh, I think this is actually doing something. And I woke up and I didn't wear my glasses again.
1: Now, That's unbelievable. Now,
0: it is unbelievable. And whether it is just, I mean, my brother made it. I, mean, a I point.
1: believe it, but it's unbelievable.
0: I know what you mean, yeah. My brother made a good point. He said, oh, but just because you believe in lucid dreaming so much, it's just a massive dose of the placebo effect. It's just this. And well, the like, placebo
1: effect is actually real. It's not it's the, nothing. It's the power of the pharmacy in your please head. Please keep going. Yes. That's <laughs> exactly, exactly what it right? is.
0: So I was like, yeah, just the placebo, just my belief in lucid dreaming. But dude, I can see long distances yeah. again. What so the powerful. F is that about?
1: So, so this sounds like an extraordinary practice. You teach workshops on it. Mm-hmm. You have an online course. People yeah. want to learn more. So yeah. tell us about the the courses and the retreats and the and and how people can learn more about. Yeah.
0: This. So I just taught in the U.S. at uh, Omega. I'll be back in the U.S. next year twice at uh, Joshua Tree Retreat Center in the West Coast and at Omega probably again uh, on the East Coast. But online courses. Yeah, I've got this course with Awake Academy. AwakeAcademy.org. It's like a six-hour lucid dreaming course. Um, it's really well-made. Uh, The guys who made it were, were at, they're actually documentary filmmakers who made an online course not tech geeks trying to make an online course and there's mm-hmm. a big difference there so they were shooting it's like really hd quality and fun. you're in it oh yeah yeah it's me talking to camera for like six hours like teaching you to lucid dream um okay and that's then my summer vacation <laughs> homework i'm gonna take that course and then i've got a youtube <laughs> Can channel I get a with discount? loads of videos sure I'll <laughs> it free um and then there's my books and workshops i guess i teach primarily around europe but i'm often in in the states and mexico next year too i think uh and i'm all over facebook and instagram and stuff charlie Morley, lucid dreaming you'll find me
1: I mean you hearing about ayahuasca you're hearing about psychedelics you're hearing about meditation all the time it seems just like a whole next level to me and something that people aren't aware of and I super encourage people to check it out because one it's a way for you to get to know yourself yes and two it's a way for you to work on things that you can't work on necessarily when your ego is in the way now if you're interested in actually being awake, awake as as, as opposed to just dream awake, mm-hmm. <laughs> I would go to the website awakeacademy.org and check out Charlie's stuff because this is profound and he's the real deal and this is not some goofy thing. It's uh, it's for real. So check out Dreams of Awakening. Check out awakeacademy.org. And charlimorley.com. And com. Yes, please. <laughs> and uh, it's been so great having you, Charlie. Thank you. Uh, You've been listening to the doctor's pharmacy. If you love this podcast, please share with your friends and family on social media, Uh, sign up wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd love to hear from you. Please leave a comment and we'll see you next time on the doctor's pharmacy.
0: Hi everyone. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Just a reminder that this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search their Find a Practitioner database. It's important that you have someone in your corner who's
1: trained, who's a licensed healthcare practitioner, and can help you make changes, especially when it comes to your health.